0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. In last week's message, I kicked off this series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I pointed out in that message how we just don't take Jesus' teachings very seriously. I'm not saying we don't take him seriously. But the truth is, I don't think we really know what to do with a lot of his teaching. And the life that Jesus portrays on this Sermon on the Mount seems not only impractical, but it seems impossible. But it's as we looked at last week, it's clear by the way that he ends his sermon that he intended, very seriously so, for his disciples to take his words to heart and to put them into practice in their lives. Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And I hope we don't pass over this issue too quickly, but spend some time wrestling with this fundamental question, why do I follow so little of Jesus' teaching? Then we have to come to grips with that. A lot of Jesus' teaching we have to acknowledge is actually about himself. It's his own sort of self-disclosure. So through these parables about the kingdom, he tells us what his own ministry is going to be like. What he has come to accomplish on earth. And we have no problem with that teaching. Those things seem relatively clear to us. But it's this kind of teaching that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. It's what we could maybe call his teaching on ethics of the kingdom, on what life as a disciple is supposed to look like. It's these ethical teachings that I think really trip us up. And the truth is, I think for many of us, we fear even attempting to obey them out of a fear that it's going to lead us down a dangerous path of works righteousness or legalism. Another thing that I want to propose to you is that I think one of the problems we encounter in our day is that we we really have a failure to understand what it means to be a disciple of someone. Because in our day, learning has become almost exclusively a matter of the mind. We have turned everything into this rationalized, intellectualized process. In other words, it's about gaining more and more information. That's what empowers us. That's what makes us feel like we are learning. Traditionally, though, learning something was really about the impact that that truth had on your life. Without that impact, you weren't really a student. You weren't. Look at what Dallas Willard says in The Divine Conspiracy. In our day, learners usually think of themselves as containers of some sort with a purely passive space to be filled by the information the teacher possesses and wishes to transfer, the from jug to mug model. The teacher is to fill in empty parts of the receptacle with truth that may or may not later make some difference to the life of the one who has it. The teacher must get the information into them Thus, if we today were invited to hear the Sermon on the Mount, or more likely now the seminar at the Sheraton, we would show up with notebooks, pens, and tape recorders. Now, forgive the dated technology there, okay? We would be astonished to find the disciples, quote, just listening to Jesus. And we'll look around to see if someone was taping it to make sure that everyone could, quote, get it all if they wanted to. Working our way through the crowd to the right-hand man, Peter, we might ask where the conference notebooks and other material were and be further astonished when he only says, just listen. Perhaps we push the record button as we sit down, thankful that we at least will have captured all the spiritual information if the batteries aren't dead or the tape doesn't stick. Again, old technology, okay? The teacher in Jesus' time, and especially the religious teacher, taught in such a way that he would impact the life flow of the hearer, leaving a lasting impression without benefit of notes, recorders, or even memorization. Whatever did not make a difference in that way just made no difference, period. Powerful words, aren't they? Reading this quote from Willard, It made me think of how many Christian books I have read over my life, how many pages of notes from sermons I have in my archives, from seminars and retreats as well. And yet I had to wrestle with that very question in my own heart, how much of that information that's chock full in my head actually makes a difference in the way that I live my life. Just a fraction of it, if I'm honest. Because I I realize that I treat information as if it was like money in the bank, you know? Because, you know, it's like the more books, the more notes I have, the more messages I hear, I just feel richer because I just keep putting it into this archive of this massive knowledge bank that I'm building up. But as Jesus points out at the end of the sermon, the only knowledge that really matters is what we put into practice, what actually changes the course of our lives. Into obedience in following him. With that in mind, let's turn to the Beatitudes, which is our text for this morning. Before we get to the actual reading of those verses, though, um, let me share something with you. Um, Pedra do Telegrafo is located on the outskirts of the city of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. And in this age of selfies and social media, it's become a really highly sought-after destination for people who want that ultimate photo for their profile, you know? And the images from this mountain viewpoint are truly breathtaking. Look at that crazy woman, all right? Um, People have taken photos of themselves doing the craziest things on this rock ledge, like hanging upside down on their toes, The Internet, in fact, is filled with these images of people nearly falling from the ledge, some including even young children. Now, let me say this. These people look like daredevils flirting with death, don't they? But here's the thing. It's actually, it's all a lie. I'm not saying it's a green screen. They're actually on a mountaintop. They are, in fact, hanging on a rock ledge on top of a mountain. But what the pictures don't show is that the mountain has a very gradual slope. And the ground below the ledge is only (laughs) 10 feet tall. (laughs) Okay? So that's kind of a low-res image, but I think you get the message there, right? Meaning, if you fall, you drop about 6 feet, okay? And then you hit the rock. And so this picture from this other perspective exposes that the apparent danger is really just an illusion. It's nothing at all. That's why everyone does these crazy things at that place. Now, this may be a more lighthearted way in which we lie to each other through social media, but there are darker deceptions that cause much more damage to others. Back in 2015, this hashtag, blessed, Social media by storm, didn't it? It was everywhere. Hashtag blessed. It was supposed to show humility and gratitude for the good things that we've received in life. But the truth, and it became exposed pretty quickly, was that it just became a disguised way of bragging to others about your life. It's like enjoying God's creation with my perfectly photogenic family in this exclusive resort in paradise. Uh, Can we get to that slide? What's what's the problem? Huh? Oh, okay. (laughs) Hashtag blessed. I don't know why the image is not there. Or can't believe my daughter uh, got into her ridiculously competitive dream school. And again, hashtag blessed. Studies, I've talked about this before in other messages, but studies have shown that the more people spend time on social media, the more we're likely to struggle with depression and even suicidal thoughts because we're comparing ourselves with the perfect life that our friends are portraying through their Instagram and Facebook accounts. But here's the thing, it's more than that false image Okay, more than that false image that we project to others, the bigger, okay, (laughs) I guess we had the image, huh? Um, The bigger concern is what social media reveals about what we actually define as the blessed life. That's the bigger worry here. And it's clear, not only through social media, but by the way that we approach all of life, that we basically define blessing. By our circumstances, by our circumstances. In other words, what I'm saying is when things are going well, then we feel, quote, blessed. God is favorable to us, He's looking down on us and caring for us. But not surprisingly, when we are going through difficulty and hardship, God does not feel very near to us, He feels far away. We feel more cursed than blessed. And it's this precisely this kind of thinking that Jesus tackles head on in the beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5 starting with verses 1 to 12 one starting with verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds he went up on a mountainside and sat down his disciples came to him and he began to teach them he said blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, before I get to my two main teaching points here, I think we have to clarify a couple of things here. In pronouncing these blessings, Jesus is not producing a list of qualifications for how God decides who is in and who is out of his kingdom. Because if these were qualifications, then what Jesus is saying would really make no sense, would it? Because then, what Jesus would, in essence, be saying is that you have to be poor in spirit. You must mourn. You must be meek and must be persecuted if you want to be a disciple of Jesus. Another problem with viewing these as qualifications is that just by simply possessing these things does not make you a better person, do they? You may very well experience great mourning in your life and persecution and come out on the other side more bitter, more angry, more resentful and actually walk away from God because of those circumstances. Not be drawn closer to him. On the flip side of that, what we could say is that there are actually many people who don't experience a lot of persecution in their life, who have never really had to mourn much loss in their life and yet are incredibly godly people who reflect the beauty of Christ. So, these cannot be qualifications that you have to have these as demonstrations that you are acceptable to God. They aren't really even virtues, all of which are praiseworthy on this list. We try to make them virtues, but if you really look at the Greek and at the original language that's happening here, the truth is we try to spiritualize them to make them look as if they were virtues, but the truth is, if you look at them at face value, they're not, like poor in spirit, the first beatitude. Okay. Poor in spirit, when we think of that, we often think of it's the person who is humble-minded because they're spiritually mature. But what Jesus is really talking about is he's saying it is the people who, when it comes to things of the spirit or spiritual matters, are in essence basically seen as nothings or nobodies, as if they had nothing to contribute to this topic. In modern language, we might translate as blessed are the spiritual zeros. You know, there's a story of a pastor who was leading these Bible studies in the northern part of Mexico among the poor. And the way he would do it is he would read a Bible passage and then sitting in somebody's house, he would simply ask them, what do you think? What do you see here? And what he discovered among the poor was that no one ever had an answer. They would just stare at him blankly, and that happened over and over again to the point where he wondered, what is going on here? And what he finally figured out is this. Nobody ever asks these people, what do they think? Because they're the poor. And he realized they've never been, no one even thought that they had anything meaningful to contribute to the conversation. So they were just never used to being asked this question. Well, what do you think about this? That is what Jesus has in mind when he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who are the ones that don't seem to have anything to contribute to these spiritual things. In the same way, we try to portray this idea of meekness as a noble quality, of humbly deferring to others, again, out of spiritual maturity, But the way that this term is typically used back in that day was to actually describe not a virtue, but somebody who is weak, who is easily intimidated, who shrinks back when challenged and is unable to speak up for themselves. This is a pushover, a wet noodle. So then if Jesus is not listing requirements or virtues, then what is this list that we call the Beatitudes? What's happening here? I want to say this. The Beatitudes are simply a description of the kind of people who are responding to Jesus' invitation to enter God's kingdom. Let me say that again. The Beatitudes are nothing more than Jesus simply descriptively telling you what are the kind of people who are responding and entering the kingdom of God. When you look at Jesus' teaching technique, what he would often do is see a live event that is happening right in front of him and his audience, and he will use that scenario that is playing out right in front of them as a teaching lesson, as a living illustration to teach the people around there. That happens, for example, with a bleeding woman who touches him and wants to really highlight her great faith. It also happens in the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life and again he takes that immediate situation and turns it into a teaching lesson to his disciples i think that exact same thing is happening here on the sermon on the mount here is jesus surrounded by his disciples and on this mountaintop they have followed him and he basically says look amongst you (laughs) this is the kingdom of god you are a living illustration Of what God is doing as His kingdom comes into this world, and out of that observation, let me make just two teaching points here. Okay, the first is this: the kingdom of God is available to all who want to enter. The kingdom of God is available to all who want to enter. Even as He spoke, He was surrounded by these who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, who are persecuted. And it's as if Jesus is saying, look around you and see the kinds of people that are being accepted into the kingdom. You, who the world has dismissed, who have been rejected, who have been ridiculed. And what Jesus is saying is, none of you will be rejected by me. Everyone is welcomed into my kingdom. I think so often we portray God as being stingy in his grace. And putting up obstacles that try to keep us out of his kingdom. But through these beatitudes, Jesus is saying that portrayal of God couldn't be further from the truth. God opens wide the door of his kingdom. And say, all who long for this, enter and come in and find your rest. Find your acceptance. Find your salvation. Again, Dallas Willard In the divine conspiracy, says the Beatitudes are not teachings on how to be blessed. They are not instructions to do anything. They do not indicate conditions that are especially pleasing to God or good for human beings. No one is actually being told that they are better off for being poor, for mourning, for being persecuted, or so on, and so on, or that the conditions listed are recommended ways to to well-being before God or man. Nor are the Beatitudes indications of who will be on top after the revolution. They are explanations and illustrations drawn from the immediate setting of the present availability of the kingdom through personal relationship to Jesus. They single out cases that provide proof that in him the rule of God from the heavens truly is available in life circumstances that are beyond all human hope. Blessed are the physically repulsive. Blessed are those who smell bad, the twisted, misshapen, deformed, the too big, too little, too loud, the bald, the fat, and the old, for they are all riotously celebrated in the party of Jesus, the flunk outs and drop outs and burnouts, the broke and the broken, the swindled, the shoved, shoved aside, the replaced, the lonely, the incompetent, the stupid, the emotionally starved or emotionally dead, and on and on and on. Is it true that, quote, earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal? It is true. This is precisely the gospel of heaven's availability that comes to us through the Beatitudes. So I think that's the first lesson to be learned here. Is that in the Beatitudes, God is saying that my heart is open wide. For all who want to come and receive the good news that I have come to offer. Any of you who have ever felt like a second-class citizen or pushed to the side or neglected, any of you have ever been felt to be marginalized or that you didn't matter, that was the crowd that Jesus was speaking to that day. All of the rejects, all of the losers, it was like the dregs of Israelite society. And Jesus is looking at this mishmash, this motley crew that has gathered around him and says, you are the kingdom of God. You are the ones. It's not the high and mighty, the powerful, the educated, the religious leaders. Those aren't the ones that are on this mountain. It's the poor, the crippled, the lame, the sick, the mourning. You are the ones for whom this kingdom is being given right now. Because you are the ones that are receiving it. The invitation was given to everyone without discrimination. And it's precisely this indiscriminate nature of the invitation that just got under so many people's skin and was the thing that Jesus was so often criticized for. Look at the people that he hangs out with, look at the kind of company that he keeps. Luke chapter 5, verse 29 to 30. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? It scandalized them and offended them that you even mix with this kind of company. What a wonderful message that is for any of us who have ever struggled to feel accepted or loved or cared and wondered, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Why was I never selected in my church for leadership? Why was I never valued or, or why did the majority culture just always make me feel like an outsider? And if you have ever felt that way, what Jesus says is, in my heart, You fully belong here. No one is a second-class citizen in my heart. It ought to make us reflect on the way that we judge others too, shouldn't it? Because inasmuch as we struggle with our own insecurities of being accepted, in that insecurity, (laughs) we can place a lot of judgment on other people and rank in our hearts the worth and the value of another human being. And we need to see others through the eyes of God, through the words of this beatitude. The second thing that I want to share is simply this. The kingdom of God is available to all who are willing to surrender themselves to follow Jesus as his disciple. These disciples were drawn to Jesus and his message because they were actually the ones who were longing for this message. It was good news to them. Especially, look at, look at verses 6 to 9. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The, the message here is that there was a certain group of people in Israel that were actually longing for this day, longing for the Messiah to come and give this message. They were waiting on God to be the answer to their sufferings and to the hopes that they had. In other words, they were actually praying that the kingdom would come. They were the ones that were looking for this message. And this is, I think, where we also need to pause for a moment. Because we need to ask ourselves, what are the problems that I want God to solve in my life? What is it really I'm looking for? in the kingdom because here is the thing the people in power don't actually long for these things and something that we need to admit is we are actually quite often in that position of power we are not the poor the destitute, the disenfranchised in fact here is the truth if we're willing to admit it is if the status quo gets shaken up too much it threatens us we don't look forward to that. We don't celebrate that. We fear that. Because in a lot of ways, if things stay just as they are in the systems of this world, it advantages us. We benefit from that. It's interesting. I shared this with the most recent batch of uh, folks who did the, uh, why do I call them batch? It sounds like they're cookies or something. They're the last, last group of people who did the, uh, Uh, understanding the Bible seminar. Um, When we read the Bible, here is one of the biggest harms to our Bible reading is that we automatically identify with the good side and assume that we're on God's team. And that prevents us from letting Scripture really pierce our heart with some of the most important truths that God wants to unmask the sin in our heart is when we so readily and automatically identify with the good side. Um, with the positive characters, with the noble ones who are doing God's work. Erna Kim Hackett labels this tendency, what she calls the Disney princess theology. And she describes it like this. As each individual reads scripture, they see themselves as the princess in every story. They are Esther never Xerxes or Haman. They are Peter, Luke, but never Judas. They are the woman anointing Jesus, never the Pharisee. They are the Jews escaping slavery, never Egypt. Ah, those are hard words to hear, isn't it, huh? Some of our greatest moments of breakthrough when we study the Bible are when we actually learn to identify with the ones who are most resistant to the work that God wants to do and say, that's me. That's my heart right now. I am fighting against God and what he wants to do in me. I think that ought to be the power that the Beatitudes have with us. He is not giving us a law here. He is not giving us requirements to enter his kingdom. He is telling us a story, but in telling us that story, Jesus is basically saying, locate yourself in this story. Where do you find yourself in the story that I'm telling you? And the truth is, for many of us, maybe we have to acknowledge, I don't know how much I identify with this list. Maybe the truth is, those things actually feel more threatening to me than inviting. If the status quo is shaken up too much, it threatens me. Luke chapter 5, verse 11 to 12, we see this interesting story recorded of John the Baptist now in prison. Blessed are you, listen, it's the language of beatitude here. Blessed are you when people insult you. Actually, let's take a look at this. It says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way that they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is this. If you are going to come and follow me, there is a price to pay. There is a price to pay. And when he addresses John the Baptist, look at what he says in Matthew 11, verse 4 to 6. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John, What you heard and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, almost every English Bible will translate the word offended differently because it's a really hard word to translate, especially in this context. A lot of scholars struggle with what to make sense of this. That Greek word is actually "scandalizo," from which we get our modern English word, scandalized. What Jesus is in essence saying is, don't let this good news of the gospel scandalize you. What I think Jesus is saying, we have to read it in the context of John's doubt. And I think what's happening here is this. John is in prison And he doesn't know what's going on here because things are not unfolding the way he expected of a victorious Messiah who would come marching in to bring victory to the people of God. And he's rotting away in prison and he sends word to Jesus going, what is going on here? Are you it? Like, are you going to ever like, you know, ascend to the throne and take over and get me out of prison? And in the face of John's doubt, What I think Jesus is saying to John is this. Blessed, it's a beatitude. I offer a blessing to those who will not be stumbled by what I'm doing here. Because here was the thing. John had an expectation of what he wanted to see out of Jesus if he was the Messiah. And Jesus was not fitting that mold. Particularly because he was still suffering. And Jesus is basically telling John, listen, stay with me. And no matter what it is that I'm gonna ask you to go through, I hope what I am doing does not trip you up and offend you or make you walk away. Because my ways are not your ways. And some of the things that I'm gonna ask you to do are gonna make no sense in your life. And in fact, John had to pay with his life. He never got out of prison, he was beheaded. And what Jesus is saying to every one of his disciples is a blessing. But the way he phrases the blessing is this. Blessed are all of you who have chosen to follow me but are not scandalized by what that journey is going to mean for you. Because you will suffer. Just because you choose to follow Jesus doesn't mean everything automatically gets better. In fact, sometimes it gets a lot worse. And what Jesus says is, blessed are you who are not scandalized by the journey of following me into this journey of the kingdom. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, to enter the kingdom, there must be a surrender, you must trust my wisdom. Over your own. We talked about that last week, didn't we? One of the themes that constantly comes up in the Sermon on the Mount is Christ's wisdom over our own. Because many of the things that Jesus will ask his disciples to do in this sermon are utterly counterintuitive and go against every fiber of instinct in our being. And the truth is, I think that's one of the main reasons why none of us really follow it. Because in that moment of turning the other cheek and loving your enemy, or not worrying about the tomorrow and all of that, because this is just so, so ridiculous. This is no way to live a life. And Jesus is saying, listen, who is the one that is truly blessed? It's the one that can follow me to the end and say, your way over my way, God. Your wisdom over my wisdom, God. I talked about that issue of wisdom and intelligence even and how hard it is for many of us to apply that to this area of morality. Sure, when it comes to advanced math or physics, intelligence wins the day. When it comes to personal morality and ethics, not so much. It feels like it's more an issue of personal preference. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It's just a choice. But Jesus says that couldn't be further from the truth. When it comes to issues of ethics and morality, you must lean on my wisdom over yours. Imagine if you were to go to a math teacher and say, I, I, I can't t- solve this problem. you got to help me out. And the math teacher, instead of going to the chalkboard and working out the math for you, said, why do you want to know the answer to this? <laughs> why? I don't know, because it's in the assignment. Just help me. And what if the math teacher were to say, not good enough. Come back when you really know why you want to know the answer to this math problem you would think fire this guy and get a different math teacher because that's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. But there's something very interesting about this idea of a teacher withholding knowledge until the student is ready to receive it. There were these interesting folks many years ago around the 3rd, 4th century known as the Desert Fathers who left civilization to go into the desert and to spend their time Um, in personal spiritual disciplines. And they were recognized for their spiritual maturity so much to the extent that huge droves of pilgrims would leave the city and go into the desert in search of these desert fathers to learn under them and to be discipled by them. And there was a particular desert father named Abba Felix, and a group of would-be disciples showed up at his door one day. And this is the exchange that happened, recorded in the writings of the early uh, church. Hear then this story about Abba Father Felix and his students. Some brothers went to see Abba Felix and they begged him to say a word to them. But the old man kept silence. After they had asked for a long time, he said to them, you wish to hear a word? They said, yes, Abba. Then the old man said to them, there are no more words nowadays. When the brothers used to consult the old men and when they did what was said to them, God showed them how to speak. But now, since they ask without doing that which they hear, God has withdrawn the grace of the word from the old men, and they do not find anything to say. Since, they are no longer, since there are no longer any who carry their words out, hearing this, the brothers groaned, saying, Pray for us, Abba. I love that story because it violates Everything that seems logical about what a teacher ought to do when a bunch of students come to them. I mean, the humility of this guy. I know if a bunch of guys came to me and said, oh, we think you're so wise, we want to learn under you. i go, sit down and pull a chair and let's get to it. I mean, talk about an ego boost to a teacher, right? But this guy goes, I've got no words for you because no one really does anything and listens. And what's so interesting is that these students didn't go, how dare you? (laughs) We came all the way to the desert to get a word from you. They said, pray for us. Pray for us. Their heart would be open to receive what you want to give. I think that's the other invitation that we find in these Beatitudes. is the invitation of Jesus to surrender to his wisdom and his leadership to believe that he is smarter than us, and to realize that only by submission to his leading can we discover the life that we've always wanted in our lives. Let me just end with these words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lusts. But we do not want to die. And therefore, Jesus Christ and his call are necessarily our death as well as our life. I love the way Bonhoeffer puts it. This call to follow him is both our life and our death. Because the greatest lie of Satan is that you can have it all. You can have it all. Cost-free discipleship. Enjoy everything that you can suck out of life in this world and attach Jesus to that. And you'll have a great life. And Jesus says, yes, there is a blessed life that you can walk into. And everyone is welcome. I will reject no one. But in order to enter into this kingdom, you must surrender the authority and the leadership of your life into his caring and able hands and into his wisdom. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll be coming to the Lord's table as a way to express our need for him. But before we do that, could I just give you a few moments of personal prayer at this time. Sometimes as a preacher it can just feel like that, you know, for me. Like sermon after sermon after sermon. And in a year we go through about 50 of them, right? Just one after the other. And it all kind of becomes a blur, doesn't it? And, you know, we somehow you know, get excited. You know, We heard a good word and something t- tickled us a little and said, well, I feel like I got something to take away from that. But I think what Jesus is inviting to is something much deeper than that. He is asking us to surrender all the instincts of our wisdom, of thinking that we know what's best for ourselves. And he says, what stands before you is nothing less than the kingdom of God. And here is the thing, you don't get there by instinct. Your instincts will generally lead you always down the wrong path. The great message of the gospel is that this kingdom is available to everyone without discrimination. In God's eyes, nobody is a second-class citizen or an outsider. You have every right of citizenship, every right of a son and daughter of God. And I pray that that would give to you the confidence to approach boldly the throne of grace. and Say, God, all that you have for me, give to me. All the plans that you have for my life. I am not an accidental tourist here in this kingdom that wandered here. But by your design, by your love for me, I stand in this place. But even as we contemplate the power of that message of grace, We also need to weigh that with the demand of discipleship to come and die in order to receive this life of blessing. Maybe that's what Jesus would say to you. Blessed are you if you are not scandalized by what I'm asking of your life this day. Have you gotten to that place where you've reached the end of your rope where you say, my wisdom is not good enough? To lead me to the life that I desire, I need to surrender to you and your wisdom, God. But it is so hard. In that self preserving instinct, everything in me says I know better. But maybe you have reached some points in your life where you realize that sometimes you're your own worst enemy. Maybe there needs to be just a spirit of faith, a spirit of trust. A spirit of embracing Jesus and saying, Jesus, you take control. You take control of my life because you are the only able and faithful leader for me, my family, my future, my career, my marriage. You take control. We're about to go into a whole series of teachings here talking about pacifism and money and worrying and all this stuff. But unless there's a more fundamental transaction in our heart about the surrender to God, you know, the thing is, we're going to still just keep treating God like a consultant, not a Lord. And he's there at our beck and call. And we pick and choose what we are willing to agree with. But can I challenge you that maybe the greatest hindrance to your spiritual growth are the very areas that you are most resistant to receiving the wisdom of Christ in your life. Just pray that for a minute or two and then we'll come to the Lord's table together. Let's pray. The day after the feeding of of the 5,000, that great miracle that Jesus did, the crowds gathered because they were amazed at the power that he displayed. And to them he said, I am the bread of life. And then he said something that was utterly offensive to these Jews. To have any part in me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. What Jesus was in essence saying in that was laying claim to the whole of us. The people couldn't accept that message. But that is Christ's invitation as we come to the table. The same invitation he gave to those early followers. This is my body broken for you. And this is my blood shed for you. To eat of this bread and to drink of this cup is a declaration that Christ is my all in all. Everything I have is in you, God. You are my Savior, my Redeemer, my Lord. That is the declaration you are making this day. I want to invite you to come to the table and first take from the bread and then take from the cup. And then just go ahead and pray a little bit more. And then our worship team will lead us in a time of closing and response.